3: Thursday morning the 13th of October Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM A campaign to give healthcare and social care workers the means to bargain for pay increases was debated yesterday in the Dáil The organisations that these workers are employed by are funded by the state but they've been excluded from national pay agreements for some 14 years since 2008 in fact
4: Many of these workers, the vast majority, this is a for
3: them. They want to do
4: this. They want to be in this service. They're not in this service to make millions of euro. You know, They're in the service to provide care and to be respected and to have the energy and ability to provide that care and service to the service users. And when we speak to service users, we've had three days of action in the last few months haven't had one complaint from a service user or or, or a family member of a service user as to a a delay in service or a stoppage in service. They fully support this campaign.
3: And we all know the services provided by these workers in the Rehab Group, Pieta House, Employability, Local Employment Services, Inclusion Ireland, Local Community Partnerships, Job Clubs, Leader Projects, and the Irish Wheelchair Association's name, but a few. Where would we
4: be without an Irish Wheelchair Association, Prosper Fingo, without Enable Ireland, without all these organisations, where would we be without them? You, Minister, would have a proper collapse in the health service if that that happened. Proper collapse. This is the bedrock of our health service.
3: This is uh, Duncan Smith of uh, the Labour Party calling for a mechanism to give pay increases to so-called Section 39 workers, a motion that was not opposed by the government.
4: You're not opposing this, so there'll be no vote tonight. There'll be no set-piece vote tonight. We're not interested in set-pieces. We want to see action. Okay, so I hope that in your response, you'll have something real and tangible to give to us, uh, to give to the workers and the representatives in, in, in the gallery and
1: all across the country today.
3: The Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, told the doll that there is perhaps a solution to all of this.
1: The issue of restoration of pay for workers uh, whose pay was cut arose, as we're all aware, a number of years ago. So to address this, a process involving the Department of Health, the HSE and ICTU, Was initiated at the workplace relations commission in 2019 it was mandated to work through these many complex issues it resulted in a finding being made um, for a pay increase for an initial 50 of the larger organizations meeting various criteria within a total group of 300 agencies subsequently in 2021 there was further engagement to the wrc this resulted in funding being made available for pay increases for cohorts of staff in the remaining 250 of the initial 300 agencies identified in 2019. I believe that a process along these lines could play a very useful role in providing solutions to the current pay-related issues that have been raised and which are very understandably referenced in this motion and have been raised with me and with government and members of this house Uh, by the community and voluntary sector.
3: Stephen Donnelly speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday. Let's speak to Adrian Kane, who represents many of uh, these uh, Section 39 workers. He's the Public Administration and Community Division Organiser with CIP2. Good morning to you, Adrian, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, We heard the Minister there talk about a proposed mechanism. That proposal was repeated again by the junior minister, and Rabbit, and indeed, the Taoiseach uh, was making similar soundings uh, the day previous. Uh, is there a solution uh, that uh, the government can bring forward, uh, as you understand it, from what the three of them have been saying?
5: Uh, good morning, Michael. Well, w- w- first thing I would say is it was a very good debate yesterday. Uh, and there was, um, I was in the gallery myself, along with uh, a lot of workers um, right across uh, the sectors, Section 39, community-based workers, etc., And people listened um, intently to the response of the government. And I think in the first place, what I'd say, I welcome the fact that they didn't oppose the motion. Um, I I thought, and a number of uh, contributors to the debate yesterday as well, marked the fact that um, it was a pity Minister McGrath uh, wasn't there, because one thing that we have said from the very beginning is that this needs a whole of government response Uh, And you've listed out the the, the type of organisations that this campaign covers. Um, Some of them come under the Department of Health. Um, Some of them come under the Department of Social Protection. Some of them come under the Department of Children. Some of them come under the Department of Education. So we're meeting tomorrow uh, under the Congress banner um, to see how we respond to that debate. And my own sense of it is that we would be looking for a meeting with the Taoiseach shock to set out, well, how do we give effect um, to uh, the government not opposing the the, the the motion sponsored by the Labour Party? That's the first thing that we would have to do. Um, I think a lot of our people would have left that the the chamber yesterday, uh, buoyed up by, by by the debate and the comments that were made. But they're a long time around, mm. um, and I've heard a lot of platitudes before, and then nothing is done and nothing happens. So. I, I, I mean, um, as I say, you know, I, I, I tried to be as positive as possible. It was a good day yesterday, but it, there needs to be follow through and it needs to be done in a timely fashion. Like, we, we have, uh, we had an outstanding Labour Court recommendation for community employment scheme supervisors for a pension scheme. And it's, that, that was from 2010. As it stands at the moment, that's still not implemented. Now, we have a mechanism and it, it, the terms of it have agreed... But, like, that, that's 12 years waiting. People have to keep the lights on and all the rest of it. Um, so we will, you know, we have to get in to, and meet with government, agree what that process is, and deliver money to people very, very quickly, as I would see it. Right.
3: Um, how are uh, workers surviving without a pay increase? Uh, it's not uh, a question of getting uh, a rise this year. I think most people are, are saying, how much will the increase be? Uh, because if you don't get a, an increase this year alone, uh, you've taken an effective pay cut of 10%. And we're talking about workers uh, who haven't seen an increase since 2008 in many cases.
5: Yeah, and like the, it's sometimes very difficult to quantify how large this sector is um and, and and rabbit yesterday used the figure of 63,000 walking across the entire sector which is huge it's a huge number of people it's a huge part of our economy and they're the only workers that have no ability to get a pay rise the only ones if you're in the private sector i mean either you bargain if you're in a union the union will bargain for you but there are pay increases coming if you're in the public sector the deal that was um, voted on last week now will provide, uh, in total, 9.5% per- oh. over over the uh, a deal going back to 2021.
3: And o- until 2008, just to explain this to people listening, that would have automatically applied to these workers, yeah, would, these yeah. Section 39 yeah. workers, because they were covered yeah. by the National Pay yeah. Agreements. Now they're not, or and haven't no, been no, since then. Now they're not. No. Mm.
5: So you, you would have probably... Um, being very honest about it, it was difficult to say were they covered as public sector or private sector workers nobody really knows but they got the pay increases because the pay increases were the same between 1986 and 2008 Mm. people were covered by national wage agreements so they got them but now that those agreements only cover public sector workers technically they're not public sector workers so they they don't get any um, increases and when we look for increases the companies say they don't have the money which by and large is the case um, because the government hasn't funded them for the pay increases, mm. and we're caught in this bind, and we go back to government to say they're not the employer, you know. So, it, I mean, we have to get off this merry ground, yeah. merry go round, and find a way to, to sit down and resolve this because people are hurting. Uh, I,
3: mm. say. I, I heard Duncan Smith say there that uh, for a lot of the workers, the work is a vocation. Is that right?
5: Yeah, I, I would. I mean, when you and the, the last time we, we had strikes all over Galway. And Mayo and Cork um, last month, and you know when, when you get talking to people in terms of the kind of work that they do, a lot of people are, are in the same organisations for a long number of years, and these are you know instead looking at say disability uh, type services etc. People build up bonds with people, you know, and yeah. that, that's that's really very important. Uh, you know, I think as a country we we pride ourselves in terms of um, the parish, the community. And that works because people know who they are and you're looking after somebody who's a cousin or a friend of a friend or whatever. And those kind of connections mean a lot, I think, you know, Mm. and they're hard to put a a value on, etc. But it's what keeps our country together probably better than most, I would suggest.
3: Uh, And you you have to love it uh, and more than love it. It has to be uh, everything to you. This vocation uh, that you get up in the morning, you want to help people, you build up these relations and so on. Uh, um, Does that leave you vulnerable? Uh, Does that make it easy to take advantage of people? Is it that if you're ignored, you go away uh, because um, you you, you uh, love the uh, work uh, so much uh, uh, and it matters so much to you?
5: You know, and I, I've often had this debate with our own members and saying mm. they're the best advocates for the people they look after um, and, and maybe not the best advocates for themselves, but that's changing. I really do think that's changing in terms of, you know, we, we have had these kind of rolling strikes in, in, in different areas of the country um, and rather than bring out entire services, etc. Okay, mm. um, but every time that we, we, we have a day of strike, more and more. People are, but we want to go next. You know, so I do believe that there is a momentum there, born out of necessity. And then more than anything else in terms of, like, we have to resolve this and we have to resolve it in a reasonable time frame.
3: Okay. It was also mentioned uh, that uh, a third of the staff are are leaving on an annual basis. uh, There's
5: a huge retention issue right across. Uh,
3: And uh, that's undoubtedly because of this. Uh, And they're skilled workers. uh, And that's why quite often they're being poached by the HSE.
5: Yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, as I say, that, that was a study that was done last year in terms of that up, up to a third of, of, of workers are leaving the sector. So it, it's just, it's untenable from the employer's perspective as well. I mean, they, they are obviously lobbying government to uh, um, uh, as well and trying to retain people. And that's something you, you hear the whole time some people come in, but then they're gone. And essentially, a, a lot of these organisations are, are just... Uh, trainee sort of spaces for somebody to go on then and get a a job that pays a hell of a lot better in the HSE.
3: Hmm. Uh, What about all of the extra money that the government is putting into the sector uh, where Section 39 workers are employed? Uh, Because this was mentioned, we're talking about hundreds of millions, I I think. uh,
5: Well, there was a figure mentioned of, I think it's 100 or 100.
3: 100 million to the health service, I think 21 million to homeless uh, uh, an increase uh, to toothless funding as well uh, which will bring their homeless service to 215 million euro altogether, Uh, but uh, I take it that's uh, for services rather than pay
5: Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I I came out of Leinster House yesterday, none the clearer uh, in terms of what specifically is that money being used for, you know I think uh, the Tarnishes' comments the week before in response to a letter or to a question uh, raised by um, Ivana Bachig led us to believe that there was, specifically within the HSE, that there was a, a sum of £100 million put aside uh, for, for, um, for wages. But uh, as I say, I'm none the clearer on that. I mean, and that's, um, I, I thought some of the responses were somewhat fudged. Uh, by uh, Minister Donnelly and Minister Rabbit. I mean, that's an issue that has to be has to be cleared up. Mm. I mean, the simpler way to deal with this is that there is that you have two budgets. You have a capital budget for services, and you have a labour budget. Um, you know, there are various ways in which we can resolve this, but and we need to have a long-term fix to it. We can't be in a situation whereby. They're throwing some money at it as a once-off because we're in a, in a period of high inflation. There has to be a way in which you determine wages in the sector that, is compar- uh, that compares to a public sector pay movement or general pay movement in mm. in, in the economy.
3: Yeah, uh, I suppose I, I listened to three ministers over the last couple of days as you did, Adrian, uh, speak about those working in uh, the sector, uh, the shock. Uh, Stephen Donnelly who we heard a moment ago and Anne Rabbit uh, and they had nothing but praise for the people working in the sector
5: Yeah and you know praise ain't going to put the, the the bread on the table at this stage and I think you know pe- people as I say our people are kind of getting a little bit tired of, of um, being praised, they want a solution and we, we need pay increases now Michael
3: okay uh, and uh, this uh, idea of uh, the trade unions coming together with uh, the department and uh, the workplace relations commission and thrashing something out uh, i take it that's something that you're open to at least
5: absolutely yeah um i, I mean i think my, my my what we need probably i think is that we need the line departments to sit down with um the the agencies that, that are under their remit. Mm. Um, I think that's probably the most coherent response. Um, and I think we need to kind of list exactly who are we talking about mm. once and for all. Um, uh, it, it might be a bit premature going to the WRC, unless you kind of get government buy-in in the first place. I think we'll just end up in saying that, that they're not the employer. Yeah. We need to do something. If we're, if we're setting off on a course, it has to be the right course that resolves this once and for all.
3: Okay. Uh, I, I don't think it, it's quite in line with what the motion called for, which would bring back that situation where the Section 939 workers uh, would have enjoyed pay cuts whenever public sector pay workers uh, public sector workers enjoyed pay rises.
5: Yeah, I mean, it would be great if it was just a follow-on and you got, mm-hmm. got it. but uh, I, um, And that may be a resolution. It might be a little bit more clear-cut in health. That type of thing, you know. Mm. It gets more difficult in, in terms of the other departments and the relationships they have, etc. Um, but uh, if there's a will, there's a way. It, 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 as I say, it was done before, mm. um, so it, it can be resolved. You know,
3: yeah. Uh, okay. Well, absolutely. Confident. It's a a, a long uh, standing campaign uh, that you and your members uh, have uh, waged. Uh, I suppose uh, the doll debate yesterday was just another step in that campaign, and it'll continue until it's concluded.
5: Yeah. I mean, we we we'll, as I say, we'll be looking for a meeting immediately with government. Um, and we'll, we'll know very quickly whether they're serious or not. But we won't be hanging around. As I say, this has to be uh, uh, addressed with a sense of urgency within a, a time frame. If not, we'll have to go back to the trenches as well. And that's certainly the message that we will be coming to go
3: forward. OK. Adrian, we we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Adrian Kane, uh, Public Administration and Community Division Organiser with the SIP2 Trade Union.
6: Michael Reed on LMFM.
3: Now, the Minister for the Environment, Damon Ryan, uh, met uh, yesterday with his European counterparts. Uh, the EU energy ministers looking at possible ways, if there are ways possible, of reducing the cost of energy here and uh, across uh, the rest of uh, the European Union. We'll hear more about that later on. But as you know, the government has taken many steps in terms of trying to help as many people as possible to cope with the increase in the bills this winter. We are all getting uh, these credits uh, for example. uh, Three 200 payments I I think are expected but the doll heard this week that it it won't work for everyone. Let's hear a little bit more about why. Independent TD for Loud and Eastmeath Peter Fitzpatrick, is on the line and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. This is an issue that you raised on behalf of one family in particular with the shock this week. Michael? Hello, Peter, yes.
6: Yeah, yes, yeah. so, I thought you were going to play a tape there, Michael, and I said, uh, <laughs> Michael, uh, Michael the, the, the biggest problem we have, Michael, is, uh, as we all know, the, the nights are getting darker, it's getting colder, and the biggest trouble now is a lot of people are putting on the electricity, and a lot of people have put the heat on for the first time in, in a long, long time. And the biggest problem there at the moment is that there's, there's, a, there's a big there's a big series uh people are starting to panic. And uh, I did speak on Tuesday, I raised a lot of issues, especially with local people, but my main concern was, I just asked the government, please, please do whatever needs to be done to keep the lights on and families this winter as a, as a matter of urgency. And I did also stated too, that if, if people are forced to freeze this winter, it's a failure on the government. Mm. Like Michael, and I did also acknowledge that what they've done in, in, so far has been pretty good. I've been very disappointed that they haven't put a cap on the gas prices but at the same time, too, Michael, I have to say one thing is I do, I do, I do appreciate what what they're trying to do, uh, and uh, I was just looking at, at at a press release there that Heather Humphreys and Michael McGrath did there at the moment. They through the the budgets for 2023 and all the measures are done. And it, when you when you look through the list there at the moment, Michael, there's a lot of good things done. But my my biggest fear at the moment is that uh, is that uh, uh, I haven't got the full confidence in them in I, I, I said over the last number of weeks in the DAW, I, I think uh, Eamon Ryan is a waffler. Uh, I think he's the CEO of the Energy for Ireland. I'm not very, very happy with the situation. I heard him on the radio station this morning, and every question was asked, he, he kind of went in circles, and it really, really frustrated me. I know, I know you said earlier on that you'd that be speaking about this later on. Mm, mm. Like he was asked a simple questions this morning what about the increase in so much gas in Ireland? And he, he started talking about you having a 90% full. Next thing he was asked is what about Ireland having storage? And he, he just said, oh, we've put on a planet mission. Next thing he started to call, talk about common purchases, oh, better prices and everything else. Mm. He just went on and on and on, and then he came back to the same thing again is, oh, we are looking after the people here on Ireland, we giving energy credits, social welfare payments and everything else. But I'm just going just to say, Michael, is, Mike, this, is, this is a very, very serious issue. Mm. Like, like, you're, you're not stupid, Michael, and I'm not stupid. Is. When you look at the situation at the moment, we've a housing crisis, it cost of living crisis, energy bill, energy security crisis, so on in prices in, in, in inflation, the cost of rent and mortgage repayments, the climate, the war in Ukraine, and then the uncertainty with the Brexit. But, Michael, what really is an and frustrating at home is, Michael, people think that this pandemic is, is gone. The amount of people who contacted my constituency office and it's got the coronavirus back, and to me, that is very, very serious. Yeah. And, and if you look at the dog there, the Simon community closed this week it meant that we had homeless people in the streets this week in the that couldn't go anywhere And I'm just going to say, this, the whole thing is all coming up. But as I said, it's important that we all work together. We have a, we have a very, very, very serious crisis at the moment. And it's very important that we all
3: work together, Michael. Okay, Uh, As you say, uh, the €600 in credits will go some way, if not uh, a good long way to helping people uh, get through the winter and uh, to pay the bills. Uh, But you were mentioning uh, one local family uh, who have a a granny flat uh, and uh, there's concern about what they'll get and what they won't get.
6: Michael, believe it or not, Michael, it wasn't only one uh, granny flat. Like uh, over the last number of years, there's, uh, we all know, there's a situation with the housing crisis, and what has happened, Michael, is uh, like families just can't afford to pay the rent and mortgages. And what's happened is that they've either given the home back or they've moved back to, the, to their siblings. And what I find at the moment is, uh, Michael, I have siblings like that there, and if they're if they're struggling, like you know, it's just natural that you take your siblings back. But a, a lot of families have taken a, a lot of uh, of, of elderly parents have getting their families back into the house and what they've done, they've built a, a week granny salad to buy for themselves down there. And a lot of these elderly people would have medical conditions and they'd be using an awful lot of electricity. But they, they, they these are, are, are one of the one of the ones that's not entitled to six hundred euros. And I, I, I had an opportunity there during the week there to, to raise it with the tunk. And like, you know, like like this household that share meters are not are not entitled. And also, I, I, I also mentioned the, with the travelling community, and also about the private. There's a lot of people that that's not uh, in, we're not being taken to hear, and the teacher kind of pushed me off. But listen.
3: Okay, the, let, let, let's hear. Let, let's hear what the teacher had to say to you in response. Then I think we can uh, hear what Mihal Martin had to say to you now. I think. We're
7: saying what is multiple flats? Is it? And... Got granny flats, and the situation
6: there is one meter. One meter for, for two dwellings. What's happening at the moment, the teacher, is that the families are, are building granny flats. The their parents come in, or vice versa. And what happens is you want to entitle one to one to one to, to one uh, grant to such. So I'm asking the teacher, it's a, it's a possibility that this can be sorted out, please.
7: It's yeah, but it's, it's it's not that simple either in terms of trying to get a system uh, that can be totally universal in terms of um, the energy credit. And that's why we've brought in other measures as well, in addition to the energy credit, that provide supports to, to, to others. Um, and, and that certainly is the situation for, um, for example, in terms of the free fuel and the extension of the free fuel uh, eligibility thresholds, which helps a lot of people over 70, for example, who would not have heretofore been entitled to the, um, to the grant. But we will um, talk to uh, the Minister's concern to see if we can, if some... Because anomalies like this are coming forward, and we, we've dealt with some uh, that have come forward in different sectors. We managed to come up with a system to deal with that, uh, but we have to do it in a
3: way that doesn't allow to, for for it's obvious um, exploitation. All right. I, I suppose uh, the Taoiseach has a point uh, that you have to be careful that people won't exploit this.
6: Well, Michael, uh, what 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 do you do, Michael? Like a, a lot of a lot of families in fairness have taken a lot of their elderly parents to move in with them, and this this has taken enough of the pressure off the likes of. Uh, the the nursing homes and about care with that situation, but Michael, like just because one or two people break the system doesn't mean that the, that the genuine person doesn't be looked after. But uh, I know a lot of families that that in that situation there at the moment is that's got a granny flat there at the moment is, and like six hundred euros over the next few months, it's going to be absolutely massive. Mm. And I I, I was just talking about the statistics there at the moment the ESRI has uh, said that 50% of all, all households uh, are at risk of energy poverty by the end of the winter. Yeah. And I'm just going to say, I just said to you, Michael, I put my hands up and I said the government is really trying very, very hard. Yeah. But we, ha- but, we ha- but it's important It's important that we, that we do look after... Well,
3: it's the- far from perfect. I mean, what, there's 6,000 holiday homes in the country that are going to get €600 euro onto their ESB bill, which probably is more than they'd use <laughs> in a lot of those houses over the year. Uh, there is... Uh, single people uh, who are living on their own um, who may not be at home very often who are going to get €600 and it might be... enough to cover their bills for the year Uh, and then there's families uh, with five and six people in it uh, who are uh, going to need that and a whole lot more and then those families uh, again possibly with uh, somebody else living in the family uh, a grandparent or somebody else uh, who's on dialysis or some other medical equipment uh, and they're going to have huge electricity bills uh, and this 600 euro will be gone uh, in the blink of an eyelid.
6: Well, I'm, I'm just looking at it. the eligibility for the scheme. Is there's no applications or there's no means to test it. But it's very, very important that we ha- that we have a look out there and we do look after the most vulnerable people. Uh, I work very closely with the Vincent de Paul him and Darg, uh, and they've been updated the situation about people coming in the whole time. Like Michael, I don't think there's a day we all put on the TV and we, we listen with the older people. They're all afraid of even putting on the kettle because the maintain that the kettle is costing twice as much. Mm. Like I, 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 know that in the TV and you're visiting people. Is the first thing you do when you you call it someone's house to take you in and they give you a cup of tea. You know, what I mean, like now I, I, feel guilty now that these people can't really afford to put on the kettle such. I mean, like it's just not. But I will say the six hundred euros will be will go a long way to help to alleviate the problem. But it, but it, but it's very important. Uh, we mentioned that there's a lot of money put away for a rainy day fund. I just hope that the government, if things don't get better, if things start getting worse, if inflation starts getting uh, uh, worse. And i tell you one thing, Michael, I don't know if you heard mm-hmm. or not. There's a of news at the moment that uh, there's, there's a natural gas plant in Norway. There's a, there's a police investigation there at the moment and the whole site has been evacuated. And I'm just, I was listening to Minister Ryan the radio, radio station this morning that nowhere is one of the places that we will go and look to get extra gas. Hmm. So if, 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 if that's going to be a major problem, that's going to alleviate the things a lot worse than, than it is going okay. in the next few months.
3: All right. Okay, well, uh, there's obviously a a lot of concern. It's not perfect. I don't think anybody is uh, claiming that the system that the government has put in place uh, is perfect, uh, and perhaps it can be improved on. Uh, While you're with us, uh, can I ask you uh, a sporting question? Uh, I'm not sure if you're a soccer fan at all, but uh, I'm sure you took great delight, like the rest of us, in uh, the Irish soccer team, qualifying for the World Cup. Uh, Were you disappointed by how that has been covered in the last 24 hours and all of the focus on on, uh, the Wolf Town song.
6: Michael, I will say one thing, and I have to admire the FAI, uh, they've come out straight away, they condemn the situation, and as far as I'm concerned, it's an absolutely fantastic achievement for the ladies team to make the World Cup, uh, the ladies football has been down in the dungeons for the last number of years, uh, in fairness, uh, they've done a great job getting, getting a fantastic manager as a team, I'd say the whole team looking forward to going to Australia and to New Zealand next year, and as a sports person, Michael, as a, as a soccer, Gaelic, rugby, or yep. basketball, or, I, I, I have nothing but admiration for the for the way that she thinks.
3: I'm sure you've heard many people sing in, uh, up the, uh, in different dressing rooms and all of that. Uh, it hardly is a shock, is it? Uh, I think the Irish soccer team would have uh, been, the, the, the men's team would have sung it uh, in the past. And I, I think lots of uh, clubs and players would sing it now and then. It's a victory song, isn't it?
6: Michael, I'll be, be quite honest, Michael. I've been involved in sport a long, long time, and I've never heard that ever, ever. Okay. In, 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 and Michael, I've played, played soccer, Gaelic, rugby, I've done everything, but I've never seen it done before, Michael.
3: Mm, okay. Uh, was it wrong for them to sing it?
6: Michael, like as I said, they, they admitted themselves that was a mistake, they apologise yeah. and I think it's very important that we move
3: on, Michael. Like yeah, and, and just look forward uh, and enjoy oh, the God. success and the win. <laughs> and uh, yeah. uh, and think about how to get there and watch them uh, in person. Alright, uh, we'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed uh, for joining us as always. That's Independent TD for Loud and Smith, Peter Fitzpatrick.
6: Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on,
3: on LMFM. I don't know, did you ever hear a team or members of a team singing uh, up the run in a dressing room? Peter Fitzpatrick says, in all the years he's involved in sport, he's never heard it once. Uh, well, this is how uh, the women representing the Irish soccer team sounded in the dressing room after that victorious night the other night. Very, very high spirits and no wonder after such an historic win, especially for women in soccer. But it's been taken very, very seriously. And if you want some indication of how seriously it's taken, uh, well, perhaps uh, you'd know already because you were watching Sky Television. If you weren't watching Sky Television, uh, maybe you'd be interested in hearing the line of questioning that Rob Wooten put to Chloe Mustaki.
1: Before we talk about the win, need to ask you about the statement that's just come out from the FAI, in which they've apologised for the player singing a song that references the IRA. Um, would you like to apologise?
8: Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, we're all really sorry here um, in Dublin. Obviously, massive laps in judgment on our end. Um, You know, lots going on when the final whistle went, and we absolutely didn't mean to cause any hurt on our end. So we we do really apologize for that, absolutely.
1: How, How embarrassed are the players by this video?
8: Yeah, uh, quite embarrassed. Um, you know, there's obviously a lot going on in the change rooms um, in such a such a major moment. So um, lots of different songs, you know, being put on left, right and centre. So look, we are incredibly embarrassed in this moment in time. Um, didn't mean any hurt on our end. So we do really apologise for that.
1: Yeah, it, I guess it, it raises the question, does it highlight the need for education on issues like this? Is that something you'd be for?
8: I only think so I think you know Um, we need to learn in these moments um, to to be better and to do better Um, you know we've all been brought up um, knowing a lot about you know uh, Irish history so um, you know we just need to be better in moments like this uh, and uh, we recognise that absolutely on our end
3: All right, well that's (laughs) a really weird interview isn't it after uh, such success for the Irish soccer team Uh, was it far too much fuss and too much focus on on which what was a a, a victory? notorious singing occasion by the Irish soccer team or does presenter Rob Wooten have a a point is there a a question now uh, that highlights the need for young Irish women to be educated about Irish history um or is it that serious at all we'd love to hear from you if you've any thoughts on that uh, before we go to the break just a, a call on a, another very important issue from a listener in Meath who is very frustrated at trying to get to see a doctor it's so hard to get an appointment with a gp she says describing her situation as it stands as outrageous, she tells us. She has been with the same practice for years, but it's just impossible to get to see the doctor when you need to see the doctor. There isn't a chance that you'd get an appointment on the same day or the next day. It's usually a week that you have to wait if you're lucky, she says, and you might get a cancellation in between. Uh, She goes on to say, it's not fair on people who are sick and need attention. There seems to be a severe shortage of GPs in the country and she says that she worries also what is going to happen if the emergency department in Navan closes. She says her husband ended up in Navan two weeks ago and they just don't know what they would have done without the staff and the wonderful care that he received there. Thank you indeed for your call.
6: Michael
3: Reed on LMFM Now let's talk once again about uh, the cost of living and how to some degree that's impacted by the cost of doing business. As you know the minimum wage in Ireland is one of the highest minimum wages uh, in uh, the European Union.
0: This is misleading Ireland was already the second most expensive country in the EU 27 before the ongoing inflation surge In 2020, when there was zero inflation, the price of a sample basket of 2,000 everyday consumer goods and services was more than a third higher than the EU average. In other words, when the purchasing power of a minimum wage worker is taken into account, it drops from second to seventh position in the rankings and behind our wealthy EU peers.
3: That's Dr. Laura Bambrick, who's Head of Social Policy and Employment Affairs with ICTU, the Irish Congress of Trade Union, speaking to the Enterprise Committee yesterday. Laura Bambrick is on the line with us. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. As suppose we're all acutely aware of how expensive it is to live in this country. But you may have raised some eyebrows uh, by saying that uh, the minimum rate of pay drops from the second highest to the seventh Highest uh, 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 When you take all of that into account, but that's better, isn't it, than 2019? You were saying that in terms of buying power or a percentage of medium pay, Ireland had the third lowest rate of minimum pay in 2019 after Estonia and Malta.
0: Yeah, morning, Michael. So one way that we, there are two ways that we look at the adequacy of a minimum wage. One, what you can do with it. So if we look at minimum wages in countries like Luxembourg, Luxembourg has the most generous minimum wage second and then Ireland coming second, but we're very, very expensive countries. So then when you look down the ranking, some of the newer members of the European uh, Union, their minimum wage wouldn't be nearly as generous as ours, but the cost of living, the cost of buying your everyday consumer goods and services, everything from getting a haircut to paying your rent to insurance on your car to public transport is much cheaper in those newer European countries. And so on paper our minimum wage will look much more generous, but the cost of living is so much more expensive. So that's one of the big measures in how we look at how generous a minimum wage actually is. And the second way we look at it is what percentage the minimum wage is Mm. to the median earnings in the economy. And not to bore listeners, what
8: that
0: means is if we were to line up the two and a half million people that are in work today from the lowest paid to the highest paid, and we were to pick the middle person in that line up, we look at their wage and we say what 60% of, uh, or sorry, what percentage is the median compared to what they're earning and that gives us uh, another understanding another measure of how a, mi- a minimum wage worker can uh, live and survive and thrive in an economy compared to other wages in the uh, in the economy and over time when we compare our
9: minimum
10: Mm -hmm. to our
0: median, it has rapidly declined from the time when the minimum wage was first introduced uh, back just 22 years
3: ago. You're joking. In 2000, uh, the minimum wage uh, bought you more than it buys today, in other words.
0: Yes. So on paper, again, in 2000, the minimum wage, when it was first introduced, it was equivalent because we were using pounds mm-hmm. and pence then. But in euros terms, it was equivalent to €5.58. Yeah. And often we hear, look, over those 22 years, the minimum wage has almost doubled. As you mentioned today, it's worth 10.50. But if I was a minimum wage worker back in 2020, and I look to my next door neighbour, who is that median uh, earner, who is earning that middle income, I had 66% of what they were earning. Mm. And 66% is a really important figure, Michael, because yeah. that's what all the international organizations, people like the OECD and at home here, the ESRI, if anybody is earning below that 66%, they're considered to be earning low, a low-paid worker. So our minimum wage guaranteed that we had no worker that was earning low pay at an hourly level. Now, you could have some people that weren't getting enough Mm -hmm. hours, and so they would be low pay. So, Back 22 years ago, we were uh, ensuring people, if they had a full-time job and they were on a minimum wage, they weren't a low-paid worker. Today, that's dropping to 51%, so just over half of the minimum. So again, another big indicator that the adequacy of the minimum wage isn't sufficient for our lowest-paid workers.
3: I'm trying to uh, imagine a 22-year-old listening to you now, Laura, thinking, what? 5.58 an hour how could could anyone live off that Uh, I remember it well unfortunately I'm old enough to remember it it was 4.40 in pounds and pence at the time wasn't it Uh, and it was a a lot of of money in terms of minimum pay rates Uh, it was uh, broadly welcomed at the time I think
0: Oh, absolutely. Because what a minimum wage does is it sets a floor. It means that, you know, it's the lowest wage an employer can pay the workers. Now, there's a whole other program to talk about um, um, clauses in our legislation were Mm. really unusual in that we allow employers to pay young adults, adults 18 and 19 less and the minimum wage were really unusual, um, but the but the good thing, as I said, about a minimum wage is it sets that floor. But that floor isn't sufficient to be adequate. And to be fair to the Irish government, yeah. Ireland is not alone in this. So there's 21 countries in the 27 countries in the EU that have a minimum wage, and 19 of those 21 do not have minimum wage that are enough to keep a a minimum wage worker out of poverty. So the EU has had to step in here. And within the end of the year, there'll be new laws in place that will ensure all governments across the EU have to bring in measures to ensure that their minimum wage over time is going to be increased to 60%. And 60% just means that you're at the poverty line. So you'll have a minimum wage that won't be enough to keep you out of low-pay work, but will be enough to keep you out of poverty, the bare minimum, that somebody going to work spending, doing a full week's work should have enough to keep them out of poverty and that's what this new EU legislation is going to bring in.
3: But it's hard to believe that in real terms, in buying power terms, uh, that if you were on minimum pay 22 years ago you were better off than you are today uh, because minimum pay has been increased 14 times since then hasn't it?
0: been increased 14 times but we also have to remember the wages of, so there's only 7% of the workforce on a minimum wage so that's 7 workers for every 100 workers in the uh, economy and while as you mentioned there has been 14 uh, increases over those 22 years, the rest of us have also been getting uh, wage increases and the proportion of the minimum wage increases haven't been enough to keep uh, account of the wage increases the rest of us were getting. And with the rest of us getting uh, more increases, um, the, the cost of living was becoming more expensive. And because the minimum wage worker was falling behind in percentage times, uh, the cost of living was also rising so they were caught in this double bind of the wages weren't rising mm. fast enough to keep up with the rest of the wage earners and at the same time the cost of goods and services were also increasing much faster than their wages were.
3: Okay Um Remember uh, coming back to Ireland in the late 1990s, before the minimum wage was introduced here, after living in Denmark, where they had a a minimum uh, wage rate uh, from the early 1990s and asking politicians and trade unionists uh, and so forth, uh, would it work here? Uh, And quite often being told, no, you you couldn't have a, a minimum wage in this country because employers just wouldn't be able to uh, afford to pay it Uh, and you'd end up seeing people losing jobs or if they were able to uh, afford to pay it uh, that would only be because they put up the price of goods and you'd end up chasing inflation. I I think you met similar arguments uh, to those yesterday. uh, Richard Bruton I think was making similar arguments to that that jobs would be lost if you were to increase the minimum wage to the living wage.
0: Well, of course, we have that natural experiment because, as you mentioned, in 2000, all of a sudden, overnight, we had the introduction of a minimum wage. And the minimum wage, as I mentioned, was brought in at 66%. And we know we didn't see a loss in jobs. We didn't see fewer uh, hours so that, you know, somebody might lose their job, but if their employer has to pay them more money, they might reduce the number of hours they have on work. We just didn't see that. And so when the Tanisha brings in his living wage, he won't be bringing it in at 66%. He will be bringing in at 60% so a a smaller increase than what we've seen back in 2000 and we really haven't seen um, that loss of uh, employment. There will be some people that will reduce their hours but they will be people that are working certain amount of hours, they might be carers or they might be lone parents and they are on other payments uh, from the state where they can only earn a certain amount of money so if there is an or they start to lose benefits or there might be you know um people concerned about their medical card if they go over a certain amount so if there's a big increase in uh, the wage rate they might decide to reduce their hours in order to be able to keep there are other um, there, there, there are other benefits uh, and entitlements because it, it might be great that you're getting an extra forty cent on the hours, but if you're going to lose a medical card because again Ireland's really unusual, we don't give everybody in the country free GP care. Um, it, it, it could be that family have to decide that they have to reduce the amount of. Hours they work because they can't risk losing their medical card. So that's another mm. side of the argument that we have to uh, yeah. that we have to resolve how social welfare and low pay work interact. That we don't create these disincentives, but as how it uh, will impact unemployment, job losses, and that. There just isn't the uh, evidence, both our own experience and international experience, about how looking Mm. after the lowest paid workers in our economy, which thankfully are just 7%, 7 Mm. in every 100 workers. Are
3: are they living in poverty, though? Uh, Because we're quite often told they're not living in poverty. Um, The minimum wage is to increase to 11.30, isn't it, uh, next year. Uh, The living wage at the moment is... Uh, estimated to be 12 an hour so even next year people will be on less than the so-called living wage when they're on the minimum wage but are they living in poverty because the argument quite often is, is that their spouse their husband or their wife uh, is also working and they're earning a lot of money or they're students and they're doing part-time jobs and they're living in uh, the family home and you take into account uh, the household income nobody's living in poverty it's just a, a top-up if you like to what's already coming into the house
9: yeah that's a, a very
0: good point so you're more likely to be a uh, younger female work part-time and a migrant if you're a minimum wage worker compared to the full uh, workforce and what keeps people out of poverty, workers on minimum wage, isn't, as you said, that €11.30 from next year or 10.50. It's their family circumstances. So you would have young adults who, because the minimum wage is inadequate, aren't able to go off and set up an independent um, household on their own because they have to stay living with the parents because their own wages are insufficient. They earn too much to be eligible for supports from the state, but not enough to live independently. So they're a real cohort of uh, people that, uh, are of concern. But it comes down to the point. Is it OK with us as a society that somebody goes out and does a full week's work that they should be be earning below poverty wages. Regardless of whether you have a spouse on a higher income and they can supplement your living standards or you're living at home with your parents, it comes down to that question that should a full-time job be sufficient to keep you out of poverty? And thankfully, the EU has stepped in and said no anybody who was working full-time should be over or at least at the poverty Mm. line. And they're doing this for good reasons because they're really concerned about the rise in populism and far-right ideas across the block where whole uh, groups of people are being left behind and in poverty and not seeing opportunities. So they Mm. need this uh, interjection into the economy to uh, make sure that everybody has a level of adequacy and decency when they go
3: okay. to work Alright uh, it, it's a by the way but it is a, a curious by the way uh, Laura I think um, uh, to look at uh, the cost of living in uh, the context of how pay has increased and that minimum pay rate of 5.58 the equivalent uh, of five euros an hour 22 years ago worth more than the equivalent of 11.30 An hour today. Uh, That's uh, uh, some difference uh, in terms of the cost of living and how that's uh, increased over those years. Thank you very much for joining us though as always much appreciated and uh, good to talk to you Dr Laura Bambrick Head of Social Policy and Employment Affairs with ICTU the Irish Congress of Trade Unions Let me bring you some more of the comments coming to us Mary in touch with us saying she can identify with the caller who can't get an appointment with the GP I rang for an appointment I was given one for a week's time and furthermore it took me five attempts to get through having been cut off numerous times what's happening to our services I've uh, been been with this practice for over 30 years Mary says a number of people in touch with us about uh, the Irish soccer team Paddy Duffy says I'm very proud of our ladies team well done as for their song much ado about nothing there's uh, people out there just waiting to be offended Eunan says regarding the singing of a song to celebrate a huge achievement by a great team it was a lapse in judgement nobody killed nothing broken the snowflakes have melted into a river now build a bridge and get over it Oh, very well Put union, Thank you. Uh, James Andrade has a different opinion. He says, no excuse, the soccer anthem is Paul McGrath and uh, to sing that way is very suspicious. Also the fact that it was in uh, Scotland who are aligned with uh, the Loyalists in the North only adds more to the insult. After watching the video they actually sang uh, a lead up into it so it was planned and uh, they learned it before they did it it wasn't a one off moment maybe they didn't know any Orange Order songs to match their orange jerseys Oh, James, thank you indeed for that. Uh, uh, another, um, there's a lot of people in touch with us, uh, somebody uh, about uh, the Sky News presenter saying, Plonker, uh, you should study the British uh, Army and Bloody Sunday, etc. <laughs> That's a uh, Bill. Uh, I'm not sure uh, if Bill is in arsehole land or if he thinks uh, Wutton is in arsehole land. Thank you indeed. We'll come back to some more of those comments in a few moments' time. If you want to add to them, we'd love to hear from you.
6: Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. Have you
3: got a car? Yeah, Okay. Is your NCT up to date? Uh, Just wondering, because you probably know the penalty for driving without a current NCT certificate is a fine of up to €2,000. Or you could receive five penalty points. Or you could receive five penalty points and the fine of €2,000. And you could be sent to prison for up to three months. But how do you have a current NCT cert if you can't get an NCT test? The reality is on the system, the system itself doesn't release all of the slots that are available at that moment in time. These, Why not? Well, it's quite simply to allow us actually deal with customers who so you Are you telling me you're sorry. holding
1: back slots?
3: No, we are not holding back. Aplus, who are the service provider, they schedule the slots. In such a way to allow individuals can log on at different times who require an NCT. They will release a block of slots six months in advance, they will bring out the three months
1: and they will continue to cascade down until the day of a test is actually required. The reason for that- so Does that re- mean so? Me? Just just to yeah. clarify, it's Mr. Funny. Watch, this is important Now, If I log on today, mm-hmm. um, if I log on today, we're, we're, we're around the middle of October now, yep. for just a bit of reference, does that mean so, the earliest possible date for the NCT as of this day in one of those local centres has been released and is an offer today? I don't understand the question, sorry. It's a very clear question. I, I if I want to book an NCT today for a car, yep. is the earliest possible date for that NCT on offer today? Or do you know why you were referencing that you're releasing them in blocks? Does that mean so, if I waited to the middle of November, you're going to release another block of dates that could potentially be closer to this date? Yes, exactly. That's insane.
3: Well, it's the that makes that, no it's sense.
1: It's the way that Aplos are operating the business. Um, they have felt that, that, the yes, Minister, that like I, I, like that's the best way that's to operate. That's, from an efficiency point of view, like, I, I can't see the merit of that.
3: Mm. <laughs> how could anybody see the merit of it um, that's uh, Fianna TD James O'Connor uh, putting questions uh, to Brendan Walsh of the Road Safety Authority who you heard speaking in that clip there at the Rockus Transport Committee There's a, a lot of Uh, People driving around without an NCT cert or an up-to-date NCT cert uh, because uh, they can't get an NCT test. uh, And uh, that has been highlighted in the Roxas Committee. Uh, You may have thoughts on that yourself. Uh, I know that uh, some people have been uh, given dates very far out locally as well. It's not just in Cork. I think it's a nationwide problem. Let me go back, though, to some of the comments coming about this controversy. Uh, if you like uh, about uh, the ladies soccer team Uh, we'd uh, WhatsApp message, quite a few WhatsApp messages coming in on on this, Uh, I'm not sure who sent this uh, but they say it's jealousy, Uh, it's not controversial it's just jealousy at work because the team won, because Ireland won it's a song that's been sung for a lifetime in all sorts of venues, sour grapes because we have a talented team leave them alone, congratulations ladies, wonderful achievement says our caller, another WhatsApp message from somebody who says the girls can sing what they like and fair play to them it's okay for the English to sing rule britannia double standards says our caller there uh, another WhatsApp message from Noel who says at the start of the game the women were wearing black armbands making marking respect for the victims of the tragedy in donegal and at the end of the game singing up the ra that murdered hundreds of innocent women, men, kids and unborn babies. Uh, Noel says it's disgraceful. Uh, Thank you, Noel, uh, for that. Uh, It seems as though there are different opinions uh, on it. We would rose in touch uh, about it as well. And she says, I think the Irish team were brilliant. The English would want to learn more about what they did to the Irish people and only for the IRA our Catholics in the North had a very hard time years ago there was a notice no Catholics no dogs need apply what does that say the truth always hurts just get over it move on looking forward to the World Cup in Australia says Rose Uh, thank you indeed uh, for that Rose Uh, if I remember correctly uh, the signs on the B&B's across England used to say no blacks no dogs no Irish. And it was always in that order. No blacks, no dogs, no Irish. Uh, and thankfully that uh, has been relegated to history. But uh, thanks uh, for that, Rose. John in Dundalk says, no way, the Irish team shouldn't have said sorry. They did nothing to be saying sorry about it. They did our country proud. It's only a song. Get over it, says John. Uh, thank you indeed uh, for that. Peter Indundalk says, I'm offended by the bonfires and the marches that take place on the 12th. Uh, uh, That's all Peter Indundalk says, but I I think uh, we understand what he means. Paddy Duffy says, I'm very, very proud of our ladies' team. Well done. As for their song, much of a do about nothing. I think I read that already. Thanks though, uh, Paddy, uh, for that. Um, yes, uh, we did another uh, WhatsApp message then uh, on something different. The prices in trim uh, four euro. Uh, in the difference uh, for briquettes, they go from eight fifty uh, to six thirty five. Uh, and uh, somebody is Price Gouding, says our caller. Thank you indeed uh, for sharing that with us as well this morning. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch. If you've not been in touch uh, and you would like to comment on the programme, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Michael,
6: Michael Reed on, on LMFM. FM.
3: Students are going to walk out of uh, colleges uh, around uh, the country in uh, about 40 minutes uh, from now. Let's find out why. Hannah Brennan, uh, Vice President uh, for the Border Midlands and western region of the Union of Students in Ireland, USI is on the line. Good morning Hannah and thanks for joining us on the programme today. Thanks for having me. Why, why are you and other students going to walk out of colleges today?
11: Um, the reason for our walkout is the cost of living and the cost of college is two expenses. We have a list of asks that we're asking the government to consider um, because we feel that there are necessary steps obviously Um, We know that the budget came out a couple of weeks ago and there was some uh, nice things for students in it. However, we want more permanent solutions and we want things that will make a real difference and really improve students' lives and make going to college more accessible.
3: Okay, give us some examples, if you would.
11: Um, So we're looking for protection for renters. um, We're looking for the government to um, subsidise affordable, purpose-built student accommodation. We're looking to abolish the student contribution charge. We want to see the minimum wage match the living wage. And um, also another thing that has come up recently, a lot of colleges have had issues with parking, with students paying for permits and then not have parking and being clamped. It's just getting really, really expensive um, between commuting because they can't, commuting because they either can't afford or can't get accommodation and then they're getting camped when they do come to college because they can't find anywhere to park even though they've paid for a permit.
3: Okay, we were just talking about the living wage with the Irish Congress of Trade Unions. Uh, it was introduced 22 years ago in 2000. Uh, I'm guessing you don't really remember that too well. Uh, but it was £4.40 an hour at the time, which is the equivalent of five fifty eight in euros now. Uh, but ICTU saying that it was worth a lot more. You could buy a lot more with the minimum wage 22 years ago than you can now.
11: Yeah, absolutely. Um, everything has gone up with the cost of inflation. Everyone has been impacted by that. But I suppose as we are student representatives, our priority has to be um, allowing students, especially um, PhDs, um, are being severely impacted by the living wage not being um, what the minimum wage is.
3: Mm, okay, well, rent uh, is, is everybody's... Um, biggest challenge at the moment isn't it? Uh, How difficult is it to find accommodation in the first place?
11: Um, Well it depends on where you are. Some places have a lot of accommodation available that may be very expensive and just completely unaffordable. Um, A lot of colleges are doing a -a rent-a-room scheme um, which is digs essentially but another issue with digs is that if a student lives or if anyone lives in an owner-occupied home they have no rights. The usual renters' rights aren't there, and um, so that's something that we're very concerned about. And um, threshold the um, renters' association would be very um, worried about that. Like it's just it's very concerning because in a ca- in any case, um, a student could be thrown out with absolutely no notice. Um, there's yeah. some horrible stories as to things that have happened
3: And it's the the, the rules of the house really isn't it uh, and yeah. I, if uh, the person uh, who's giving the digs or you're getting the digs from whatever way you're looking at it, uh, says you can't use the fridge you can't use the fridge or you can't have friends over you can't have friends over
11: Yes um, so something we would like to see is some legislation made um, to protect both the renters and the students or um, and the tenants like Uh, because obviously the protection needs to happen on both sides, but the protection needs to come in, and it needs to come in quickly, in my personal opinion. Mm.
3: Um, Do you think, uh, you said there's a lot of horrible stories. Uh, When there's horrible stories, uh, do you think the people providing digs would prefer uh, not to have students there, or are they doing it just for the money?
11: See, it's hard to say. I'm not going to say yes or no here, because... Some people probably are, and some people probably aren't. Some people are yeah. genuinely opening their homes, mm. and are so it's, genuinely it, it, just want to help. But it's, 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 it's
3: yes and no. It depends. Case by case basis. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and if they're doing it for money, they're probably the people who are saying I don't want to even see it. Don't come near the kitchen, uh, or let alone the fridge. Yes. Yeah. Okay, and, and and they'd be asking fairly uh, big amounts of money for that for the use of a, a bedroom, a box room. I take it on occasions.
11: Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. We are seeing a lot of that.
3: Okay, and if uh, you're to get a room in a house, how much would you be expected to pay?
11: Oh, God. <laughs> I suppose that's probably a case-by-case basis as well. Um, mm. Digs used to be the cheaper option, um, and that was why a lot of people would have gone for it before if they were late getting accommodation or something. Um, there's no point in me saying a certain amount because it will vary from mm-hmm. college to college and from, like, supply and demand. Um yeah.
3: But I well, I mean, lo- a lo- 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 locally I think the average three-bedroom house is 1500 and 2000 uh, in Dublin, but you wouldn't be asked to pay those kinds of f- figures, I take it?
11: Um, no, you would hope that you wouldn't be, but no. unfortunately, like obviously not as high as that, but there are, especially in the likes of Dublin, there are mm. people paying up on 800 for digs, which is ridiculous.
3: For digs? For digs. Right, okay. Would five or six of you not get together and get a house?
11: the houses aren't always available right, um, okay. look it's, it's, the, it's the housing market is yeah. crazy and it's something that is impacting absolutely everyone and we are aware of that. Of course it so is again, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, we're, yeah. we're for the students so we have to prioritise them.
3: Alright and you want action taken on it, this is why you're walking out today it's not just to make the point that you're in this dire situation uh, but uh, you want the government to intervene directly and to change that situation going forward so that you're not relying on the private market uh, and that that there would be public, uh, publicly provided accommodation available for students?
11: Absolutely. And we would like the government to subsidise the building of some of this accommodation because we've known that this was happening. Um, there's always a housing crisis um, and it's just gotten worse and worse every single year. Um, but I suppose since COVID, a lot of students have, that would have, say, commuted previously, wanted to move out Um So that obviously put another impact on the housing crisis. And then there's more people commuting because they can't get accommodation. Mm. And it's it's a knock-on effect, honestly. Everything is being impacted by everything else.
0: I'm sure it
3: is, yeah. And I'm sure people are spending a lot of time commuting. uh, And that might suit some better than others, uh, depending on on how they commute, uh, uh, that you might be able to study on the train or or, or whatever. But is it resulting in people not being able to take up their place in college?
11: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, there's a lot of deferrals and dropouts um, because people either can't get accommodation, or can't afford to commute, or don't have the time to commute. I was in Manute last week, and we heard tell of a student um, commuting from Donegal um, to Manute, which is over a three-hour journey every day. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, mm. So yeah, you, you can understand their frustration when you hear stories like that. Mm.
3: I think you'd have to be younger than me to do that, to be honest with you, Hannah. (laughs) Um, Tell me, uh, though, uh, about um, the fees, uh, because uh, that was a a very uh, welcome thing that the government did. Uh, Surely that helps with uh, affording accommodation that uh, you've a a thousand more than you'd have expected because of the reduction in the fees.
11: Absolutely, but... um In all all honesty, it's not enough. Um, The cost of living has gotten so high at the moment that obviously that is very welcome. It would be more welcome if it was permanent or if the fees were cut altogether. Um, Ireland has the highest cost of college in Europe. We have pay the highest fees um, out of anywhere in Europe now. So it's just like, obviously, that thousand euro was very welcomed. And we, we like we have, we lobbied the government for that. Um, but it's a case of it would be far more beneficial if it was made permanent, um, rather than just being a one-off for this year.
3: Hmm. And bad as it is now, uh, I think it's estimated that it's going to get worse in time. The accommodation crisis is going to get worse in time.
11: Yeah, exactly. Um, and we, like, honestly, we can't afford for it to get worse. Um, students are crying out for accommodation. People are dropping out of college. People, like, people just can't afford to really exist. Um, like you see students they're in college 40 hours a week and then they work 20 hours a week and they're still living at home with mum and dad and it's like it impacts the college experience I lived at home um, during the time I was in college because I couldn't afford to move out Mm. Um, and it really does like not not even just the going out aspect of it but socially like you can't like go next door to see your friend because Mm you're living at home. um, And it is definitely impactful in every sense.
3: You're you're a a college student living uh, the life of a a school child.
11: Essentially, yeah. Mm. I think you've put that very well.
3: Okay. Um, Now, there's a lot of us who who would feel that many of the things that you're talking about, providing uh, purpose-built student accommodation and so on, should have been done 10 years ago if not 20 years ago if not before that uh, and even if uh, there was a commitment to providing that type of accommodation now it's going to take some time but there are some things that you want done in the very short term like a, a ban on evictions and you'd like a, a referendum on housing and that people would be given a constitutional right to housing
11: Absolutely, absolutely um, especially when we're coming into the winter now and obviously there's the crisis with heating and um, we're absolutely asking for an eviction ban, especially even if it is just for the winter months, up until say March, and um, if we were to take a leaf out of Scotland's book. Um because like people can't be homeless this winter. It's that's a terrifying thought, honestly, that anyone, not even just students, would be homeless for the winter. Hmm. Um so an eviction ban absolutely would be something that we are calling for.
3: Okay. Well there's gonna be this mass walkout today. Uh, I, I take it it'll be a mass walkout. Uh, uh, oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah okay. Uh, and uh, I, I'm pretty sure that it, it uh, will uh, gather a lot of attention. It certainly won't go unnoticed. And i expecting it to be raised in, in the DAWL and that the government will be asked questions. What are you hoping to hear from the government?
11: We're hoping um, for some acknowledgement that what came out in the budget wasn't enough. Um, and that more solid promises and that the promises will be stuck to and that everything that we ask for will actually be achieved because we're not actually asking too much. We're asking for housing, a living wage, and a place to exist within college, which I believe is every student's right. Okay. Um, um. We're, I, don't, I don't believe we're asking for too much there, and I think if the government were to acknowledge that, that would be
3: fantastic okay well you've made your points here and thank you for doing it uh, I think we'll be hearing a lot more about uh, this protest as students walk out of college at 11 minutes past 11 is there any particular reason for the time 11 minutes past 11
11: um, well it's memorable but it also they will be leaving a class we didn't want to put it on the hour oh okay Um <laughs> So okay. we want them to actually walk out of a class because that
3: makes more of a statement. Ah, right. Okay. Okay. Very good. Look, thank you, Hannah, uh, for joining us. Uh, you've got to get to class to walk out at 11 minutes past <laughs> 11. And thank you, as I say, for joining us uh, this morning. That's Hannah Brennan, uh, who's uh, the Vice President of the Border, Midlands and Western Region of the Union of Students in Ireland.
6: Michael, Michael
3: Reed on, on LMFM. Gas prices are almost 90% higher than than they were a year ago across uh, the European Union. Why is this uh, the case? Well, it depends on who you speak to. Vladimir Putin, the uh, Russian president, says it's Europe's fault. It's because of the EU's green energy drive and the underinvestment in the global oil and gas industry an interesting perspective. Let's speak to Karen Coleman who's uh, the editor with EU News Radio which covers EU news for Irish radio stations. Good morning to you Karen and thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. The EU energy ministers met yesterday. They'd have a, a very different perspective than Mr Putin.
9: Well they certainly would and I think many others would have a different perspective to his particularly skewed perspective on why the prices are so high. Of course, it's all to do with the war um, in Ukraine, and that's going to continue. And yes, the energy ministers met in Prague yesterday, and they were there to really look at ways to try and see how they could reduce the alarmingly high bills that we're all having to pay now for energy and particularly for gas. And the, they're, they're, they didn't reach a consensus on, on some of the main Issues one being whether there should be a cap imposed on the price of gas. And Mm. after that meeting or or during the meeting, the um, Energy Commissioner Kadri Simpson told uh, people that there will be a package. They're working on a package of proposals which they're going to produce next Tuesday. They're going to publish it and there are going to be further ways in which potentially the EU could help or come up with measures to reduce the price of gas. And she talked about four, potential, four, four areas and four measures that they're going to address. And one is looking at the current gas benchmark price system. She was saying that it isn't working, it's artificially inflating prices, and they're going to have to look at developing an alternative benchmark system. This, of course, is going to be very controversial. And next week, they're going to set out how that might work. Then she talked about the need to reduce gas reduction. At the moment, the Commission came up with a proposal that there would be a voluntary 15% reduction in consumption of gas in EU member states. She talked about triggering an EU alert that would actually make that mandatory. She also talked about a proposal, which again, they will um, fully flesh out and Mm. publish next week, about a joint approach to limiting prices she talked about solidarity agreements between and among member states particularly solidarity agreements um, to help situations where some regions will face a larger supply crunch than others and then the final um, proposal that they're going to deliver on next week um, will be to facilitate the joint purchasing of gas so in other words to stop eu member states Outpricing or outbidding one another when it comes to individual agreements with gas suppliers, and this is something, of course, that they they talk about how during the COVID, the height of the COVID crisis, that the EU came together. So instead of outbidding one another for vaccines and drugs, and they came together and 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 issued and 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 collectively per, jointly purchased vaccines, which was seen to have been very successful. So they're looking to do potentially something similar. Okay the four main yeah. measures Michael mm. that we'll hear more about
3: next Tuesday yeah. uh, and, and alternative sources uh, to get gas from uh, America and Norway uh, I was talking to Peter Fitzpatrick TD earlier in the programme and he was talking about a, a threat on a, a plant in Norway and just to mention to our listeners that that's been resolved it, it was a hoax uh, so uh, if that's a, a source of supply uh, it still remains uh, a potential one uh, but what about the idea of a, a cap there is some resistance to it uh, Germany in particular, uh, are opposed to a cap, aren't they?
9: Yes, and actually, Minister Eamon Ryan was speaking about this earlier this morning as well, about the fact that it's not, it can seem like, it's very simplistic to say, impose a price cap on gas, and we'll just pay the one price for all of us, and the Russians will just have to accept that. When you investigate that and analyse it, It's it's a very complicated thing because of the reverberations if a price cap is imposed. So if the EU says to, for example, Russia, if they are going to, if we are going to continue to take gas supplies from Russia and we say, well, we're only going to pay so much, then the implications could be very severe. And as we have seen with Russia and the way it's behaving in Ukraine, it can, when, when, when it reacts, it can react so very viciously and very dangerously. So I think that's part of the complexity here um, is how it would, how Russia would react. And then I suppose more broadly, Michael, about how else it would reverberate in terms of the wider gas supplier markets as well. So I think this is why there is not consensus at all on on imposing a price cap on gas imports and the commission is looking to do this it's saying that it needs as I said to develop alternative benchmark systems and it's say, it say, Kadri Simpson said yesterday as well she talked about it that even if a benchmark system, a change in a benchmark system takes longer there's a need to uh, for a temporary mechanism to limit the prices and that they're going to show, they're going to come out with more information about this mechanism. Um, So again the devil is in the detail and presumably we will hear more about this but it it, it seems that just imposing a price cap on imports of gas, doing so is very complicated.
3: Mm. Uh, Wars always uh, result in huge change. Uh, Is this war going to change uh, how we use energy or the type of energy that we use? There's a lot lot of talk about renewables. Uh, I think a lot of people throw their eyes up to heaven because uh, this is all of a sudden. We're not going to put the infrastructure in place overnight. Uh, But it it does bring into focus the need to be less reliant uh, on some of these older uh, fossil fuel type forms of energy.
9: Of course it, it does. And I mean, as we all know, this is a major, major, major wake up call in terms of our absolute now a very real necessary, urgent move to go towards the green, greener, more renewable consumption of energy sources. And of course, you know, this is something we should have been doing years and years ago, but it was so easy to get fossil fuels and our energy supplies from the likes of gas that we just didn't move fast enough. Now there will be, I would say, much more acceleration towards greener forms of energy at an EU level. A lot more money now is being put into the development of alternative energy supplies. And of course, we already have a a range of renewable energy sources already existing. I think Eamon Ryan, too, though, has been talking about construction being an issue and and planning permission as well for for some um, Mm -hmm. alternative supplies. And indeed, Commissioner Simpson yesterday, she said she talked about, in fact, that there is much more agreement on the benefits of affordable renewables and low carbon technologies for consumers, so there is going to be I think much more acceleration towards putting money in towards these renewables, and indeed, of course, there are very interesting things too Michael. Mm. You may have been covering them about hydrogen and mm. what and yeah. the development of, of hydrogen. In a, in a very mainstream way um, for our energy sources as yeah. well. So I think much in all is it's incredibly depressing and, and really of concern when you see what's going on in Ukraine and then the wider um, implications across the world as well. I think glimmers of hope certainly will be in terms of now much better, cleaner, more reliable sources Mm -hmm. of energy that are not uh, fossil fuel driven over the years ahead. Of course, the question is short term versus long term and what you do in the meantime. Okay, in the very short short term. term
3: I'm sorry, Karen, we're running out of time. We'll be hoping to hear something on Tuesday that will result in uh, lower bills for us all. But thank you indeed. Uh, As always, always great to talk to you. Karen Coleman, editor with EU News Radio, which covers EU news for Irish radio stations. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye.
2: The Michael Reid Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now michael at lmfm.ie LMFM podcasts with CNC carpets. We bring the showroom to you or book a new showroom appointment on 87 660